there are very, very few places where life as we know it can exist. Mm -hmm. The earth is one of them. And we need to do everything we can to protect, preserve it, keep it as a place for life. But we also need to be thinking about how we can take life beyond the earth. And as I look at the moon and the asteroids, they are dead worlds. Yes. They will always be dead worlds. Life will not exist there unless we take it there. Mm -hmm. And so I think life is inherently good and it's a moral thing to try to preserve life all the way from uh, the bumblebee and the hummingbird up to humans. Mm -hmm. And we ought to be expanding to take life beyond earth and into the universe because it's a good thing to bring life where there is no life. Mm -hmm. Hello and welcome back to another episode of David Talks With. I'm David John, your host. Today, I'm thrilled to be sitting down with someone who seamlessly blends the worlds of science and storytelling, Mr. Les Johnson. By day, Les delves into the mysteries of the universe as a physicist at NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center, pioneering frontier space propulsion technologies. But when the sun sets, he transforms into a renowned science fiction and popular science author. With several books under his belt and accolades like the Canopus Award, Les has made a significant mark in the literary world. I have personally been captivated by many of his books, like this insightful book on graphene I'm holding. His works aren't just entertaining, they're deeply informed by his groundbreaking research. And through his fiction, Les champions ambitious real-world space missions. And it's mostly in his capacity as a writer that we're speaking to. It's an honor to have you on the show, Mr. Johnson. Thanks for having me. I appreciated your invitation. I've been looking forward to it. Great. So let's start with your day job at NASA. So you're the space propulsion technologist and mission principal investigator at NASA. What does that role entail? Sure, sure. Well, first thing I have to do is I have to let everybody know that uh, I have to kind of keep a life in, in two worlds right now. I keep one side of me is uh, the NASA guy working on space missions. The other side is the science fiction writer. And although they inform each other, <clears throat> my employer at NASA likes to keep me, you know, keep those pretty separate. And so I'm speaking to you today as a, as a science fiction writer uh, and a science writer, but I can talk about my NASA job. Mm -hmm. And and at NASA, I have been truly blessed. I've been there for a while. You can tell I'm follically <laughs> challenged. Um, and I work on mostly advanced space systems and propulsion technologies. And I, I've been very fortunate to have some experiments fly in space, a couple of missions launched, most recently uh, a small payload that launched on Artemis One last November. Um, and it's it's been it's been a real pleasure to see the stuff that was science fiction of my youth becoming reality today and actually be able to touch some of that. So it's pretty exciting. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, it looks like, well, the space race is back again. Um, like a, a week ago, we know that um, India has just launched um, their space carrier to the backside of the moon. It looks like uh, some other countries are on the move as well, like China. They plan to launch their um, launch astronauts uh, to space by 2030. So how is NASA involved in the new generation of the space race? Well, um, first off, kudos to the Indians uh, for successfully landing on the moon. Very few countries have done that. And I was reading an article just the other day and about the project and what all their ambitious plans are. And I think it's awesome. And as far as what the Chinese are doing, you know, they've been they've been sending people to Leo low Earth orbit for a while. And they're talking about going to the moon. And uh, as long yeah. as we're all going there peacefully, I think it's a good mm -hmm. thing. 
Now, NASA's involvement in this new space race is kind of interesting. Um, mm. And this is all public you know, knowledge. It's, it's really becoming a, a public-private partnership. Um, I know that sounds kind of yeah. hard to say on on mm-hmm. uh, on microphones because so many P's and it tends to blur out. But yeah. the, the the thing is, NASA is actually partnering with some of these entrepreneurial space companies now, as opposed to just buying services. Uh, mm-hmm. SpaceX, Blue Origin, some of the traditional aerospace companies like Lockheed Martin, Boeing, and others. Um, mm-hmm. We're really the the agency's forming some interesting partnerships to make a return to the moon possible and looking at what comes next. So I, I'm excited about it. I. I look at it as kind of an echo space race. These are the people who are doing this are people of of roughly my generation, a little younger maybe, who grew up thinking we were going to have, you know, 2001 space space odyssey be real in 2001, mm-hmm. uh, that we would have moon bases and Mars. And as they got older and made billions, they got frustrated with the pace of exploration and decided to jumpstart it by finding ways to make it more affordable. And they succeeded. And I think it's awesome. Yeah, I'm also very intrigued by uh, the private corporations that are becoming more and more involved in the space industry, especially SpaceX. I mean, uh, I'm I'm an Elon fan personally, but I also think that the technologies that they're developing are quite interesting and, and quite unique. They, they cut in from a different angle. Well, what I've been impressed by is, is how much they've changed the cost model and how much more mm-hmm. affordable space launch is. Uh, for, for a long time, the single most costly part of any mission was getting it off the ground and into space. And the the cost model and the changes in the cost of how many dollars per pound to get a payload to space has come down dramatically. And what that Mm -hmm. does is it decreases the cost of a mission, which allows space agencies and private companies to do more missions for the dollar. And it's no longer necessarily the single largest expense, which is awesome. Maybe now we can put more emphasis on the, the payloads and what we're doing in space. Exactly. So... Well, as we were talking about inspiration and how your generation is back echoing in, into the space industry, I'd also like to know um, what inspired you personally to delve into this uh, the field of space propulsion. Was it uh, Star Trek and the space race? or? Well, it was a combination of uh, inspiration and luck. Um, mm-hmm. I, I was inspired to study uh, science, particularly physics, and think about working for NASA. For, for two reasons. One is I was seven years old when Neil Armstrong walked on the moon. Mm-hmm. And I very vividly remember my parents waking me up, getting me out of bed because it was late at night. It was like 11 p.m. and watching him walk on the moon. My sister was really big into it. She had a scrapbook with all the newspaper clippings. And so she got me excited. And then I discovered science fiction. And I started reading science fiction novels when I was in elementary school. And, and those were inspirational. Uh, you know, the human possibilities in space and the things we might be able to do got me interested in engineering and science. And I decided I wanted to be a scientist. So I studied physics, uh, got advanced degrees, got a job uh, working for NASA here in Huntsville, um, began working on space systems, not necessarily propulsion, and then got an opportunity to work on advanced propulsion that was not rocket-based. It was something called Mm -hmm. a tether. And Mm -hmm. And a space tether is a way to move around in Earth orbit without using any fuel. And the way I describe it to people is it you, you create you, you deploy a long wire and put a current through it. And what that does is it generates a magnetic field. And if, when you were a kid, you probably had bar magnets. And if you put two yeah. North Poles together, what happens? They repel. They repel, right? So the Earth's a big bar magnet. So if you mm-hmm. can fly a magnet in Earth orbit, you can push against that magnetic field. 
And what that lets you do is move around in space without fuel. So I started working on that. I actually had a flight experiment that was funded. It was part of a Japanese experiment that flew. And that gave me an entree into working advanced propulsion. And from there, it was just a small step uh, and an opportunity I had at work where I raised my hand and said, I'll do it, that led me to working on solar sails, tethers, actually nuclear propulsion, uh, some an electric propulsion and things like that. So mm -hmm. it was it was a combination of desire and opportunity. And I was I was truly blessed. Well, that sounds great. It's like uh, <clears throat> intertwining of both your personal interest and the circumstances that have um, allowed this opportunity to emerge. So could you elaborate on solar sails? Um, like, how do they work in particular? Sure, I'll be glad to do that. Um, well, when you when you think about propulsion on the ground, it was a big step forward when we went from uh, canoes and oars, like the Romans did, right, and and the Greeks, to uh, and and the Polynesians. I think when they were settling the Polynesian islands, to to yeah. sailing, right. Once you put up yeah. that big sail, you can then take advantage of the environment around you to do the work exactly. that was done manually. Right. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. now all of a sudden, instead of doing it all by brute force, human power, you've got wind blowing against the sail, which propels mm -hmm. your ship and moves mm -hmm. you across water. Yeah. So in space, there's an analogous thing to a sail if you go sailing here on Earth, and that's a solar sail. And the way it works is this. You're, you're, I'm looking at you on screen and your viewers, you know, it may be looking at us or if they're in a room uh -huh. listening to the audio version, you know, they're seeing the room around them. But as the light reflects from objects and shines in your eyes or falls on you, it's pushing on you because mm -hmm. light's made of little particles called photons. And each of these photons of light, though they have no rest mass, which is strange, you know, it's one of those quantum yeah. mechanical things, they do mm -hmm. have momentum. And so when they bounce off of you, just like wind reflecting from a sail on a sailboat, this light is pushing on you. Now, you don't feel it because the Earth's gravitational force is much, much larger than the photon pressure and force. Uh, the wind currents in the room here in my home, where I thankfully have air conditioning <laughs> in this hot <laughs> summer, you know, is more force than I feel from the light in the room. But if you get away from the Earth's gravity and out of the Earth's atmosphere, and you deploy anything large in space that's reflective, it will be pushed on by sunlight. And it is a mm -hmm. measurable push. And it's beautiful because it's constant. As long as the sun is shining, you will continue to accelerate. So a solar sail, imagine a large sheet of aluminum foil, much lighter weight, much more robust, that's attached to a spacecraft. And this sail points toward the sun and uh, as the light reflects from it, it pushes on it. And you change the angle with which the light reflects to steer. Mm -hmm. And you can maneuver around, around in deep space away from the Earth using a solar sail and not require any fuel. And the beautiful thing about it is you keep accelerating as long as you're close to the sun. And you can start achieving speeds that are faster than any rocket can provide. That's so it really is an amazing propulsion system. It sure is. Yeah, yeah. Well, so would that be primarily used in perhaps uh, interstellar travel or more in uh, exploration within our solar system since it, the sun doesn't shine that far? 
Well, it would be both. And um, I had the privilege of co-authoring a book with one of the leading experts in the world, two of the leading experts in the world on solar sails earlier in my career. I was called Solar Sails, A Novel Approach to Interplanetary Travel, and it's still available. And it describes a lot of the missions that are possible with sails. And it's not a textbook. It's written for the average person. But the answer to your question is both. Um, sails near the sun, where the sun is sunlight is bright, there are a lot of science missions that require spacecraft to go to destinations that you have to hover. And when you're hovering with a rocket or a conventional propulsion system, you're constantly having to thrust to maintain position. Imagine that's like being you know, at sea and there's a current and the current would wash you to the North Atlantic, but you don't wanna go there. You have to mm -hmm. use your sail to stay in the South Atlantic, right? Exactly. So you're pushing, you're fighting the current. Well, in space, the currents can be gravity fields, the sun's gravity, the earth's gravity, the moon's gravity. And if you want to stay in, and observe different parts of any space around these massive objects, you mm -hmm. have to fight that gravity. And a solar sail enables you to thrust all the time and not um, have not be swept away by the gravity. So the people who study the sun at NASA, those are called heliophysicists, solar mm -hmm. physicists. They want to go to various locations that you have to thrust all the time to observe the sun. And a solar sail is the way that you can do that and, and be able to do it without having to have massive amounts of fuel or really not even be able to do because you can't carry enough fuel. Yeah. Now, for, for interstellar travel, which I've also thought a lot about, and I cover in my book, A Traveler's Guide to the Stars, um, what you do is you take a solar sail and you deploy it really close to the sun where the sunlight is really, really bright. And with all that extra light falling on the sail, you can accelerate very rapidly to a high speed and then fly out from the sun, continuing to thrust until the sunlight's too dim to provide any thrust. But mm -hmm. by then you're going two, three times faster than Voyager. Okay. It's incredible. And that would allow you to go to really deep space locations. And mm -hmm. potentially, if you were going in the right way, pass up Voyager along the way, uh, which would be kind of cool to do. And then if that you want to really go to deep space faster, mm -hmm. as you're exiting the solar system, you put big high power lasers out there, light, doesn't mm -hmm. matter if it comes from the sun or a laser, and you continue to accelerate as you leave the solar system and you go faster and faster. So mm -hmm. there, you can use them for both. I see. So, so how do you make sure the solar sail is not destroyed? in the process, um, either by a laser beam or, or, or by the photons bombarding it? Well, first off, you have to make sure that it can handle the energy of the light that's falling on it. Uh, current generation sails, I'm glad you had the graphene book that comes into play here mm -hmm. in just a minute. Uh, right. Current generation sails that people are talking about flying for science missions would not fly very close to the sun. And they also wouldn't go to the outer solar system. They're strictly mm -hmm. Somewhere between Venus and Mars is their operating range, okay, in terms of distances uh -huh. from the sun. If they go any closer, the radiation and the heat they generate might compromise their structural integrity, and they mm -hmm. might not survive. So that's where we are today. But um, materials like graphene, and it's how I got interested in writing the book Graphene, was because mm -hmm. I read a technical paper by my friend and colleague, Dr. Greg Matloff at City Tech in New York that des described how you could use a graphene sail with its extremely strong, extremely robust material 
It's the strongest by weight material we've discovered, 300 times stronger by weight than steel mm-hmm. and, and can be made in, in large sheets, although we don't know how to do that yet, could go very close to the sun and survive for these interstellar sails. Wow. And so, it, you know, in the future, we're not ready to fly graphene sails. The technology's not there yet. But in the future, when we build these big interstellar sails, I suspect they'll have as a substrate or the sur- subsurface layer of the sail material will be graphene. And that'll enable us to send these probes out of the solar system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Graphene is also like um, a, a spectacular material that has been, will, will probably be more massively applied in futuristic technologies, I would assume, um, due to its uh, special durability in, in many areas. It is the closest thing we've got to being a superconductor that doesn't require to be super cold. It's not mm-hmm. quite a superconductor. It still has resistive losses, but it's much more conducting than silver, uh, much better than just about any other conductor we have. Uh, mm-hmm. The weight that the structural strength of graphene is amazing. If you were to be in a room and and if you could build a uh, a large sheet of graphene, one atomic layer thick, which mm-hmm. by the way, you wouldn't be able to see with your eyes, it'd be so thin. Um, you could put an elephant on it and it wouldn't break. Wow. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. So that's... this stuff is amazing in terms of its its capabilities. Uh, it was the the people who discovered it and characterized it uh, in 2004 ended up winning a Nobel Prize for their discovery in 2010. So I mean, this this was groundbreaking stuff. Uh, yeah. Really amazing. That's truly incredible. So why don't we um, move over to your career as a writer? Sure. Um, so when did you begin your writing career in science fiction or, or just as a writer in general? Well, <laughs> I write three different kinds of things. I write technical papers all the time. Mm-hmm. And that started really in graduate school. So that would have been when I was in my early 20s, right? Um, and then I, I discovered at, when I was a, a teaching assistant at Vanderbilt in the graduate physics program, I discovered that I had a talent for explaining physics to people who were not physicists. Um, and, mm-hmm. and, and the example I give is, is I had to teach labs and courses. Uh, one set of courses was physics for physics majors. And coming into that as a freshman physics student undergraduate, they already knew it all. And they were yeah. just eager to show me how much they knew, right? So I, mm-hmm. I, the class went okay. It wasn't my favorite. Uh, physics for engineers, sorry to stereotype. They were more interested in calculating how many digits they could get the answer to. And, you know, yeah, th- then they weren't the learning. <laughs> yeah, then they were, you know, interested in learning the fundamental physics. But when I taught the arts and science students, and mm-hmm. I could explain to them this notion of something called, let's say, give an example of something like, called torque. Which, mm-hmm. which means mathematically you can explain why you put a doorknob on the side of the door that's far away from the hinges as opposed to right next yeah. to the hinges. Mm-hmm. And the door is easier to open and close and you can describe that mathematically. You, I could see the light bulbs go off, right? Yeah. As the students who were not normally thinking about math mm-hmm. got it. And, and so I started getting invited to give talks about science to different groups, science fiction conventions and uh, different civic groups. And, and I kept hearing, you ought to write a book, you ought to write a book, you ought to write a book. So I had an opportunity, again, with my good friend and colleague, Greg Matloff, in 2007 or so, might have been before that, to write uh, our first, my first popular science book called Living Off the Land in Space. He was an established mm-hmm. science, popular science writer, and we co-authored that book. That led to the Solar Sail book and some others with Greg and his wife, C. Bangs, who was the artist for those. 
And then around 2010 or 2009, 10, um, I was at a science fiction convention, which, and I don't put on Spock ears. I, I go as, as me <laughs> to give these popular science talks. And I was talking to a friend of mine who had had his first science fiction novel published. Uh, you may have heard of him, Dr. Travis Taylor. Mm -hmm. uh, Travis is on, the, he was the Rocket City Redneck. He's on a show called uh, Secret of Skinwalker Ranch, which is on the History Channel. And um, he and I were talking about how space exploration is like the most dangerous thing that we humans can ever do. Uh, nature's out to kill you at every turn. And we were describing the fact that we ought to write a book that tells the story of a return to the moon and, and basically have it be uh, Jack London's The Call of the Wild, which was, you know, <laughs> nature trying to... Have you read The Call of the Wild? Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. So, I mean, in that book, nature's trying to kill the protagonist every day, exactly. right? Mm -hmm. And in space, that's the way it is. The least little mistake and you're dead, okay? Yeah. So we were talking about that and it turns out his publisher overheard our discussion and she said, send me a proposal. So mm -hmm. we wrote a proposal for a science fiction novel called Back to the Moon. We wrote it. He got a really good review in Analog Science Fiction Magazine, which is kind of the go-to review magazine for science fiction. Uh, we ended up writing a sequel together called Onto the Asteroid. And then that led to me writing my own novels, such as Mission to Methany and the Space-Time War and other things. Uh, so it, it began with a collaboration and ended up with uh, some of my, my, current, my current books. That's awesome. Um, yeah, uh, I've found your works... Um quite interesting in, in the way that they're very um they're very uh in, in informative in, in the sense that you can understand a lot of stuff but they're also uh very relaxed and not rigid as you would expect from a textbook and it's almost like you're just listening to stories you're listening to analogies but you're also acquiring a massive amount of knowledge and i would <clears throat> earnestly recommend your books um to all my listeners um that are tuning in right now. So how about you as, as, as a fiction writer, how would you devise plots? Do, do, do you work backwards from the ending or? Um... Well, that, that's interesting. You should ask that. Um, I am a plotter. Mm -hmm. And so what that means is I like to have an idea for a book, figure out where it's going to go and kind of how it's going to end before I ever start writing. And, and mm -hmm. I, then I create the characters, but as any fiction writer will tell you, as you create characters, if they're going to be believable, sometimes they take a life of their own and they have a mind of their own. Yeah. And I'm, and my plot doesn't necessarily fit as well as I thought as the book mm -hmm. begins and you start writing, because you might write them into a situation and then you figure a way out and you say, well, my character would never do that. That would be against their yeah. ethics. So I got to find another way. And then your whole plan <laughs> of where you're taking <laughs> the book has to be reworked. Uh -huh. But the nice thing about being an author is in that universe, you know, you're the supreme deity. That's so true. if I get to the end of the book and I want to tweak something, I can go back and rewrite something at the beginning to tweak it so that it reverberates through the end of the book, right? To where yeah. I want to have it be. Mm -hmm. Now, there are other writers, and I worked with one, the great Ben Bova, who was one of the writers that inspired me as a youth. Um, he, a few years ago, he asked me to write a novel with him, and I did. It's called Rescue Mode. Mm -hmm. and uh, the book sold well and it was about a mars mission where something goes wrong and unfortunately it had the, the luck of coming out the same year as the martian by andy weir mm -hmm. uh, which is an awesome book and people pay yeah. attention to ours our his ours sold well but didn't sell as well mm -hmm. as andy weir's um 
So that book went well, but he's what's called a pantser. Mm -hmm. He writes by the seat of his pants. And so for me, that was difficult to get used to. What it meant was uh, I, I met with him. And I said, okay, Ben, well, how do you want to do this? We need to plot this out. And he said, no, 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 I don't plot the book out. Here's the general scenario, a Mars mission where something goes mm -hmm. wrong and they have to survive. Here are the characters. He gave me some character sheets and mm -hmm. said, let's just see what happens. One step at a time. One step at a time. Oh, wow. So we did that and it worked out good. The book got good mm -hmm. reviews. It was a lot of fun to write. And, um, but it was harder for me because I'm a, it, based on my day job and my training, I like to have a plan, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm currently working on with Ben, even though he died, he died during COVID of COVID. Uh, but this past spring I was approached by his estate and they've asked me to finish his last novel. Mm -hmm. And so they gave me how he began it without an outline. Cause he's a pantser <laughs> <laughs> and I'm completing that book right now, which is loads of fun. Mm -hmm. So uh, that that's kind of my writing style and process. That's interesting. Uh, how do you discipline yourself to write? Um, would you write every day or whenever you feel like writing? It's whenever I can. Mm -hmm. I have a pretty demanding day job and I will go weeks at a time yeah. without writing. Mm -hmm. And when that happens, I get behind schedule because publishers have these things called deadlines. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and if you want to get paid, you got to get in by the deadline. Ooh. So yeah. when I get too far behind, I, I just basically hole up and write and we'll take mm -hmm. some weekends, maybe take a day off from work. Um, I also write when I travel for work. Uh, you know, I'm in an airplane. Mm -hmm. uh, I might read some technical papers or something associated with work and then I'll get off the laptop and I'll write. Or when I get to the hotel room at night, sometimes I'll write. So I, I basically, I, I don't have discipline. I have deadlines mm -hmm. and, and I, I write when I can to make sure I can meet that deadline. Well, that's another, it's like the higher discipline almost. It's it's a restraint on um, the physical level so that you, you have to do it um, rather than from the inside. But but yeah, no, that's interesting. Um, so you write whenever you can. and I do. Yeah. So um, out of all the books you've written, do you have a personal favorite? Or did they all come to you as as if they were your children? <laughs> well, I have two children, and I won't tell you anything about favoritism because I love them both. I, I like all my books, but I have to say that there are a couple of them I am kind of partial to. Um, mm -hmm. One I'm very partial to was my 2018 novel called Mission to Methany, and it's mm -hmm. a first contact story. It's the first contact yeah. story I've always wanted to write. The plot line for that book and what happens in that book has been with me as long as I can remember. Now, the beginnings of the book have their origins in a in a different setting. I didn't know how I was going to begin it, but the overall concept I had outlined long, long, long time ago. So that's that's really one of my favorite fiction books. Um, if I had to pick a nonfiction book as a favorite, I've written several of those, about five. I would say it's my latest one, A Traveler's Guide to the Stars, which uh, came out from Princeton Press last fall. And it's probably going to be my best-selling book. It's being translated mm -hmm. into six languages, which is exciting for me. That's a new thing for me. It's going to be in uh, Korean, Japanese, uh, Russian, Chinese, Arabic, and Hebrew. That's great. So I'm I'm thrilled that it's sold yeah. so well. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, it's 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 kind of my baby in terms of the nonfiction. Uh, the mm -hmm. graphene book would have had that position prior to 
uh, the release of uh, A Traveler's Guide. So, mm -hmm. uh, and, and in terms of my fiction, though, I also am very partial to a collaboration. Now, my favorite collaboration, probably not the book with Ben. I had a good time with that and learned a lot from a great writer. But Travis Taylor and I are working on a new trilogy, the first book of which is out, and it's called Saving Proxima. And it is a mm -hmm. first contact story set in the not too distant future. So um, I would say of my collaborations, that's probably my favorite. I see. So actually, let's just uh, push back to uh, collaboration. So, so when sure. you're collaborating with someone, um, do you guys contribute equal uh, equally to the book? Or is there like a difference in... Um, well, it's really not as quantitative as people might think it is, but... It, well, it is. It, I, I, my, my collaborations, with the exception of the one with Ben, have been with the understanding that we're going to do each our own share, half and half. And the way it works with Travis, typically, is he and I, he's also a plotter, by the way, which mm -hmm. makes it easier. Uh, okay. We get together, typically at our favorite Mexican restaurant, over mm -hmm. a few days, and we plot out the book. And then typically, the way it's worked is I start, and I'll write roughly the first half of the book, according mm -hmm. to the plot. And then Travis takes it, reads it, edits it, changes it, and then writes almost to the end. Mm -hmm. And then I take what he's done and read it, edit it, change it, connect it, mm -hmm. and then write the ending. And oh. then we go rewrite each other a couple of times and edit each other until it's one voice. Mm -hmm. And then the yeah. book is finished. So it's it's yeah. we each do about half and half. We hand mm -hmm. it back and forth. We each liberally edit each other. Mm -hmm. And so far we haven't argued, which is great. And That's great. Uh, yeah. we're on our or second, fourth book together right now that we're mm -hmm. working on. Four out of five. There'll be five total when we're finished. Um, now, my collaboration with Ben was a little different. I did most of that book. He's the senior writer. Mm -hmm. He had the idea. He was the editor. He could overrule me on anything. But I probably wrote 65, 70% of that book. I see. And then Ben would come in and edit it, change it, make it much better because mm -hmm. uh, he's a really good writer, right? And uh, the product would be then end up being probably, you know, 60, 65% me and the rest him, but with his fingerprint on the whole thing. I see. So um, as you've written a lot of, and, and as you've written and read a lot of science fiction, what do you think is the purpose of science fiction? I know like some authors like uh, Isaac Asimov and Douglas Adams write their books like fables, attempting to convey some something about human nature or, or just have some good irony jokes. Um, like others like Jules Verne dream big about the future. So what's your take on sci-fi? Wow, that's a good question. Uh, well, first and foremost, I want to be motivated to turn the page, which means on science fiction, regardless of what its message might be or to the purpose for which it's written, whether it's just the writer wanting to get paid or whether they have some deep social impact message they want to convey, I want to be engaged and want to read it. So I think when I write, no matter what I'm writing, I want to tell an engaging story with believable characters. So that said, I think the purpose of science fiction, it can be any number of things. For me, I try to inspire people. I mean, I mm -hmm. may have things happen where people die. I'm not as bad as some writers. I haven't killed off 90% of Earth yet in any of my books. Mm -hmm. But, you know, they tend to have risk and they're good guys and, and bad people and uh, things happen. Some characters don't make it. 
but but what I want to do is I want to inspire and entertain at the same time. You will not find me writing a book that has a dystopic ending. Mm -hmm. uh, there might be some pretty terrible things that happen along the way, but I want to show that the human spirit and ingenuity can overcome these challenges and we can make tomorrow better than today. And I think mm -hmm. uh, if I could get preachy for a minute, uh, I'm looking at the screen and I would say your, your generation needs that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm um, aware of that. Yeah. Yeah. Because this is a much too pessimistic generation and, and I understand the challenges that you're facing, but you know, you, you, you can meet them head on and you can make tomorrow better. Yeah. Um, I'm an optimist myself and I can see that a lot in our current generation where people tend to become isolated islands and not really, um, and, and apparently just stop, um, thinking about the future as a whole because you're too traumatized by whatever is going on in the immediate present. But I think people should always be thinking about the future because um, without that, we wouldn't have been where we are today. You're exactly right. And, and the future is not going to be better unless the people of today make it better. And, exactly. and so I don't like to see people give up. That just frustrates me to no end. Um, I have to, I look back at my parents' generation for inspiration. Uh, my Both of my parents were born bef before the Great Depression. So mm -hmm. the early part of the 20th century, they spent their childhood and teenage years living through the greatest economic upheaval oh, in yeah. American history, the Depression. Then World War II began. My dad was in the Army Air Corps. He fought in North Africa and the Italy campaign. They overthrew totalitarianism. Mm -hmm. uh you know the cold war they, yeah. they set the policies to get us through the cold war where the you know communism was ultimately defeated with the fall of the soviet union and i look at the challenges they faced and they overcame them they did what they had to do and exactly. i look at my generation and yours and i see the challenges and we can do the same i trust in that as well I, i'm a firm believer of the human mind and of humanity, I, I I believe that um, our species is um, there's a deep purpose within us to improve on what we have and um, work towards the elevation of the world surrounding us and to us as a people. So we've been talking about life, right? Um, and what's interesting about life is that. Uh, it's there's almost um, a, a calling, I would say, for each and every one of us to attempt to preserve life. And do you think going to multi, um, going interstellar, um, do, do you think that's a necessary step in life preservation? I, I do. I actually have a whole chapter on this in my book, Traveler's Guide. Um, my my. First off, I have to be real, real clear. I have a, a, a theistic worldview, a Christian worldview. Mm -hmm. And so I believe there's something more than us, right, that, mm -hmm. that is a motivator. But but even within that context, um, if you look at the solar system beyond Earth and you look at the worlds of our solar system, and as we mm -hmm. have these exoplanets and we look at these exoplanets and learn more about them, What's quickly realizable, and this goes back to my notion of space is out to kill you, is that there are very, very few places where life as we know it can exist. 
-hmm. The earth is one of them. And we need to do everything we can to protect, preserve it, keep it as a place for life. But we also need to be thinking about how we can take life beyond the earth. And as I look at the moon and the asteroids, they are dead worlds. Yes. They will always be dead worlds. Life will not exist there unless we take it there. Mm-hmm. And so I think life is inherently good and it's a moral thing to try to preserve life all the way from uh, the bumblebee and the hummingbird up to humans. Mm-hmm. And we ought to be expanding to take life beyond Earth and into the universe because it's a good thing to bring life where there is no life. Mm-hmm. I think that's a moral good. And in the process, if we can use space technology to elevate people of Earth and help solve problems of climate and energy here, we're not abandoning the planet. We're making the Earth a better place while we spread life elsewhere. That's the way it ought to be done. Exactly. And I think there's a common misconception that the people that want to go to space don't care about Earth. Oh, that's wrong. Oh, Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, oh, no. Uh, And in fact... I was just going to say so many technologies that we have that we enjoy today have been attributed to a pioneer um, to pioneerings in, in the space industry. Um, if you think about like um, a lot of medicine, um, a, a lot of the machinery that we have today are developed by uh, space engineers. Well, and I think in the near term, and, and I've been giving this a lot of thought, we can use space to help solve the energy and environment problems here on the planet. I mean, we already use it to monitor the pulse of the planet. Mm -hmm. Uh, When you hear a a weather forecast, like right now, there's a big hurricane brewing in the Gulf of Mexico. They're trying to, or in the Atlantic, they're hoping it doesn't go into the Gulf, but in the Atlantic, Mm -hmm. it's a cat five. Where's it going to go? Who's in danger of being hit by it? That will be determined in large part by satellite data. Exactly. Uh, the weather forecast, wherever your listeners are, is informed by satellite data. Uh, you, mm-hmm. Your navigation as you go across town using GPS on your phone, satellite data, monitoring climate change, uh, spread of deserts, rainfall amounts, global temperatures, sea level, ice pack density, where all of that's measured by from space. Exactly. Right. So that's all part of our life today. Uh, in fact, I would contend you can't get through the day without touching space in some way in your daily life. It's just not possible. And I think in the near future, we can go to space with power beamed down from space to help provide green energy for the planet. I think eventually we'll be mining asteroids instead of mining Africa, mm-hmm. the raw materials of our civilization, yeah, which is a huge step forward to preserving the planet. And I think we'll ultimately perhaps... Uh, be thinking about putting things called sunshades out at L1 mm-hmm. uh, while we get our, our carbon emissions under control to maybe help keep the planet from getting so hot while we mm-hmm. wean ourselves from carbon. So these are all things we can do in space that have nothing to do with leaving the earth and have everything to do with improving the quality of life on earth. And oh, by the way, while we're doing that, we're developing the capability to spread life throughout the universe. Exactly. So, so. my answer is let's get busy. <laughs> yeah. Why are we just talking about situation. Let's do this thing, mm-hmm. you know? Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, totally. People, um, well, all of us should be more aware of, um, as we become more aware of our world and our greater world, the, the universe, I would say it, it's, it, it's the purpose that we have is 
to improve what we've got. And going space is crucial to this step. I agree with that. And and it it meshes with um I think it meshes with this whole love your neighbor thing. Because, you know, our purpose ought to be helping to improve quality of life for our neighbors. And I would define our neighbors as being everybody on the planet, both human and non-human. And, you know, currently we're not doing a whole lot for the non-human part and we need to start helping Mm -hmm. out there. But that doesn't mean we have to sacrifice our technological civilization. We can use that technology to that end. And and I just think we need to get on with it. Exactly. Um, One thing we've talked about, uh, or one thing we briefly mentioned is asteroid mining. And I think uh, the commercialization of space is another interesting field. We talked about in the beginning of uh, private corporations um, getting into um, the astronomical field. But um, do you think, uh, or how would you evaluate the potential of space commercialization? I, I think in large part, it's already there to a degree. Um, I, I was mentioning uh, some of these data products measuring sea ice and water and yeah. uh, navigational services and all that. A lot of those people pay money to have. Uh, communications uh, is already industrial commercialized in that these big comsats, which are orbiting the earth and relaying data all around the globe, they're being paid to do that. Uh, big yeah. banks use satellites to transfer money. They pay for that service, right? So there is a lot of commercialization. The sense that you're probably thinking of is when can you go? <laughs> um, and, and like everything else, I think at first it's going to be the rich. Yes. Uh, when airplanes began flying and airline service was offered, it wasn't people like you and me that got to fly the airplanes in the 1930s across the country. It was the people who mm-hmm. had the money to pay for it that got to do it, right? Yeah. So I think with spaceflight, it's going to start out being the, the billionaires providing rides to millionaires. Mm-hmm. But as there are more and more flights, the cost is going to come down. And suddenly you're not going to have to be a millionaire to go to space. Mm-hmm. You're just be your average, you know, middle-class person that gets to do that. And I think that is uh, for your generation. I think you'll see that. I was hoping to see it, but I don't think I'll see that expensive, inexpensive an access. I think mm-hmm. we'll see hotels in orbit. It'll start out as where you go on your honeymoon. Then it'll be yeah. where you go on your vacation. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, I think as we people might live the, there. And people might live there to support the industries that are developed. So I think it's coming. It's not coming as fast as we wanted, but it's coming. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm glad to see that day coming. Uh, I would be personally thrilled to take an elevator or maybe not an elevator, but um, a spaceship to to say to Venus or or to Mars. Maybe not so much Venus uh, because Venus uh, has a more serious issue of um, high temperatures. And maybe that's not as habitable, but definitely to our, our surroundings, um, to orbiting uh, space stations, to the moon. I mean, I, I would, you know, if it were affordable and safe and routine, I would sign up in a heartbeat uh, to take a, you know, two week lunar vacation. I think yeah, it'd be yeah. awesome. You know, um, mm-hmm. I don't know that I would sign up for a three year Mars trip. That's a long time. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it takes... we need better propulsion that's what i was working on in my day job how do we get this trip time down um so that that could become affordable and doable as well yeah so maybe let's go back to uh propulsion now that we're talking about it um do you think we would eventually gravitate away from the current chemical rockets we're deploying or would there still be a general demand of chemistry 
Well, it, it, it's an interesting question because uh, here on Earth, our gravity well, the force of gravity is pretty strong. Mm -hmm. And rockets are one of the only types of propulsion we know of currently where you can get more thrust from the rocket than the force created by the weight of the rocket. It's called thrust mm -hmm. to weight. And in order for a rocket to get off the launch pad, it's got to have its rocket engines put out more thrust force than the gravitational mm -hmm. force holding it down. And that's why they lift off and go to space. Uh, unfortunately, if our planet were just a little bit heavier, like if it were 50% larger, mm -hmm. then rockets would not be able to get us to space because they wouldn't have enough thrust to overcome the weight of the rocket. So I, I look out at some of these exoplanets being found where they are super Earths and they're twice the size of the Earth. And I think, well, those people will never mm -hmm. go to space because <laughs> yeah. uh, they won't be able to build rockets to get off the planet. Um, and yeah. there are very few other propulsion systems that give you the thrust to weight. Now, when you get out into space, that doesn't count as much. You want efficiency mm -hmm. for thrust. That's why things like electric propulsion, nuclear propulsion, and those things uh, are, are really attractive. Mm -hmm. um, but here on to get off the ground, there's really nothing better than an elevator, which you talked about, for getting off the ground. Yeah. And even if we wanted to build a space elevator, we would have to be able to have rockets to go up to help build it from the top down. Mm -hmm. Because yeah. these space elevators have a small asteroid as a counterweight attached to the top, and you got to maneuver all that around. That's true. So we're going to be using rockets to get up there for a while as we try to reach back down and mm -hmm. build build something like a space elevator. Yeah, or maybe I guess we could have a hybrid propulsion um, in, in the future. Like maybe uh, you use rocketry to get out of the planet, and then you switch over to some other mechanism that helps you. Uh, navigate space in general oh that's what we do now that's what the solar sail would do it would launch from a rocket mm -hmm. and the oh, rocket okay. would fall back to earth and the solar sail uh -huh. would take it around the solar system um there are also electric propulsion systems which use mm -hmm. um ions for propulsion charged particles mm -hmm. they are very efficient they're still rockets and you need fuel they're about 10 times more efficient than chemical but they're still a rocket and require fuel uh, they're also pretty widely in use. There are several missions flying that use that. Um, so, and nuclear propulsion is coming, mm -hmm. where you use the energy uh, from from nuclear fission to heat your propellant instead of burning mm -hmm. it in a chemical system. Now, that produces really good thrust performance, but you wouldn't do it to get off the ground because of the risks yeah. of the nuclear reactor. You'd use that in space, also. Yeah. So, why do we use nuclear fission instead of perhaps? nuclear fusion well well that, that isn't really controllable yet but maybe in um several decades it, it will be and would fission rockets be or, or would fusion rockets be better than in, in that sense if oh you already answered the question absolutely that's why we're not using okay. them today we can't we don't have compact right. fusion reactors that put out more energy than they that takes to use them as mm -hmm. soon as we have that reliably done at large scale then we can make them more compact and eventually they ought to be possible to be small enough to be on a spacecraft. And then you're really talking. Once mm -hmm. you have fusion drive, you can probably talk about going to the nearest star in a human lifetime or yeah. a little bit longer than that. Um, still too long, mm -hmm. but doable, right? Yeah. So, you know, that, that's going to be a big deal when we finally get fusion drive. Mm -hmm. uh, so a fusion drive is basically a fusion reactor within a ship. Yes. And the propellant would probably be hydrogen. 
and you'd superheat it using the energy from the fusion reaction to mm -hmm. make it go really fast as an exhaust. There are also ideas for fusion rockets where you would expel part of the fusion reaction mass mm -hmm. uh, that would be thrown out the back to help give uh -huh. you that exhaust. So there are lots of different ideas about how you might do fusion. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I heard another idea is where you drop off um, a bunch of nukes and that blows you forward. Um, it's a terrible way, but uh, is is that even a feasible idea? It is. It was uh, it was pioneered in the 1950s and 60s uh, by Dr. Freeman Dyson, among mm -hmm. others, and it was a a project called um, Orion. Mm -hmm. And what the thought was, and you have to put yourself back in the early days of the Cold War, mm -hmm. and this is before my time. But I've talked to people who worked it. I talked to Dr. Freeman Dyson about this, as a matter of fact. They believed that we might fight wars in orbit and that mm -hmm. we would have spacecraft that would have to maneuver with people on board quickly from place to place in orbit to fight the Soviet Union. And so mm -hmm. they wanted to develop a system that could rapidly launch from the Earth, get to space and fight wars in, in low Earth orbit. So they came up with Project Orion. And the idea is exactly what you said. Here's This is a, an oversimplification. Mm -hmm. Take a submarine, which is sealed for, you know, in the ocean, yeah. sit it vertically, put a big shock absorber between it and a big steel plate that's the thick of your house, thickness of your house, mm -hmm. and start detonating high, uh, nuclear weapons under that plate. Boom, boom, Yikes. boom. Okay, uh -huh. it, the impulse imparted by the explosion starts propelling you and if you explode a nuclear weapon expelled out the bottom every three seconds, boom, boom, boom. boom. Mm -hmm. You can get to space. And then they looked at what happens if you keep accelerating. And they mm -hmm. found that they could achieve a few percent the speed of light before leaving the solar wow. system. So they actually invented uh, the first probably technically viable interstellar propulsion system uh, mm -hmm. before as they were thinking about how they'd fight a war in orbit and but you're right i don't ever want to do it because that would be really bad for those of us here on the planet exactly i think what you'd want to do is you'd want to launch that into space before you started doing that and i would not want to be on the first crew <laughs> yeah i think i'd wait till it had been proven out a few times <laughs> um, yeah <laughs> the project orion it's a great idea there are some youtube videos out there where they did non-nuclear testing back mm -hmm. in the 60s, and you can see how that worked out. And then um, there might be some uh, some interviews with Dr. Dyson, where he talks about his work on Project Interesting. Orion. Yeah. Is Dr. Dyson um, the uh, inventor, or rather the the conceiver of the Dyson Sphere? It is. Oh. He's a very, very mm -hmm. one and the same. Brilliant man. I got to meet him, wow, this is 20, about 10 years ago, at a meeting at Caltech in mm -hmm. Pasadena. And uh, he was the eminent speaker and I was there for a workshop and he was participating, but was the inspirational speaker getting kind of older at the time. He's since mm -hmm. passed, uh, but he, he gave a talk about advanced space travel and propulsion and Dyson spheres and Project Orion and all that were, were topics for the time he was there. Really creative guy. Yeah. Those concepts are fascinating and uh, quite mind boggling, really. I agree. Um, so would you say, uh, or do you think that um, humans would set foot on a planet 
uh, perhaps in the habitable um, in, in the habitable zone of some stars in the next one or two hundred years. Two to three hundred. Two to well, yeah, yeah because and it probably I, takes I, like it'll take a while to get there, mm -hmm. and right now we just don't have the capability to go. I, yeah. I think that for sure within the next hundred, I shouldn't say for sure, in all likelihood. Mm -hmm. Around 100 years from now, give or take, we'll send our first robotic probe to another star. Mm -hmm. It's probably human, the Centauri human, system. Probably. Proxima or Alpha Centauri. Mm -hmm. um, humans are a lot harder. It takes a lot more resources. That's the true. It has to be a lot heavier. Yeah. So I think the first step, like all of our space exploration, mm -hmm. will be with robots. Before we sent people to Earth orbit, we sent robots. Before we sent people to the moon, we sent robots. Yeah. Before we send people to Mars, we're sending robots. Mm -hmm. And I think it'll be the same for the planets around the Centauri system. We'll send the robots, then we'll send the people. Mm -hmm. I've always found Centauri a, a, a very interesting system, how they have they have three stars in one solar circle. And or just imagine like uh if one day, you know, um be able to set foot on maybe like uh a planet in the habitable zone of Proxima Centauri. Then at night, you just look up, then boom, there's three stars. That would be wouldn't it be awesome? It would be really yeah, interesting. Yeah, uh, it's sort of like um, Tatooine in Star Wars, where you have the binary system. I'm all in. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I just we just have to figure out how to do it, but I'm afraid mm -hmm. I won't see it. Um, but it would be awesome. I agree with you. Mm -hmm. I've dreamed of that since I was a young person. I think it would just be great. Yeah. I think the other issue is the amount of time it takes. And time is the ultimate resource. Um, it, it, it is sad that perhaps many, many scientific advancements would take place um, after all of our lifetime. Um, and it, it, to, to some extent, it, it's it's a pain to see that because you would hope to experience it immediately because thinking about it is totally different than actually interacting with it. Well, here's, here's the optimist view of that. Mm -hmm. How I've come to grips with what I would call fear of missing out on the future FOMO, right? Uh -huh. <laughs> um, FOMO F fear of missing out on the future. You don't remember Newton discovering gravity. That's how true. to quantify gravity. Uh, we were not around, I was not around when I just went to see Oppenheimer, the movie, mm -hmm. uh, when all those great physicists uh, were learning the secrets of how to unlock the energy of the atom. I wasn't there. I didn't see it happen. Yeah. Um, we, we, by the time I was born, general relativity was already known. I didn't get to see that discovery and, and be a part of how it unlocks secrets of the universe. Um, so I, I kind of look at the future the same way. I'd like to mm -hmm. see it, but you know, it's, probably just the same as what I've already missed that happened back there. Right. <laughs> mm -hmm. So uh, it's best not to look back and it's best not to have that FOMO. What's really best mm -hmm. goes back to what we talked about is make it happen sooner. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but it would also be nice if we could live longer and um, well, people have been talking about that uh, and it's, it's common in sci-fi where it is people living uh, thousands of years, like what they did in the early biblical times. Well, I think um, the 20th century was the century of physics, mm -hmm. right? Relativity, unlocking quantum mechanics, going to the moon. This is the century of biology, CRISPR, mm -hmm. uh, mRNA technology for vaccines, uh, correcting birth defects genetically before they're born, 
taking a genetic test to find out if you have a predisposition for a certain disease and then maybe doing something to head off getting the disease. So we're going to see, I think, um, the, the age of curing diseases and solving genetic problems just before they happen. Mm -hmm. This is the century of biology, and we will see revolutionary things happening of comparable scale to what we saw with physics in the 20th century. It's, it's going to be amazing. I'm thrilled to hear about that. And to experience that eventually um i would say so uh, uh growing up I've, I've i've always heard my dad say that uh the 21st century is the century of biology um i mean i i haven't been really uh in intrigued so much so uh by biology uh sorry to those who love biology but um i've always thought that eventually well be able um because or i've always thought that biology would be the key to uh sustaining life and, and well, well because we assume biological life forms and i don't think that's going to change i don't think we are going to become transhumanists and morph into robots i hope not yeah <laughs> i think there are pluses and minuses but the minuses look like they outweigh the pluses to <laughs> mm -hmm. me but keep going but then yeah. well there, there's also a philosophical dispute to that but uh, we're not going to go into that field but what i'm saying is um biology is of immaculate significance and the sooner we realize that the better because it's everywhere it's we are manifestations of biology we are subjects of the subject i'm getting increasingly aware of that as time goes on <laughs> yeah so um, you're right i'm all in Let, let's figure out this aging thing let's figure out how to cure chronic diseases yeah and let's let's use it to improve the quality of life for people mm -hmm. that's one of those things i don't want to see just available to the rich i think yes. if we make these breakthroughs in biology unlike a space hotel where i don't really begrudge people wealthy mm -hmm. enough to do it doing it when i can't mm -hmm. um i think if we get life extension or disease cures we need to find a way to make sure that it's available to everybody because uh everyone needs to benefit from that agreed agreed other people would say, though, that our century is also the century of information and computation, um, given the rapid developments in uh, computer science Correct. and information I agree with technology. You. Yeah, I think it could be both. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, I yeah. agree. And both of these fields are significant to contributing to the space industry. Absolutely. Um, what, just a quick thought. People talk to me about, uh, in fact, I heard a talk not too long ago at a meeting of what's called the Interstellar Research Group. Mm -hmm. And this is an organization, it's a nonprofit uh, I helped found. You can find out about it at irg.space. But it's it's a group mm -hmm. of visionaries who think about how we might go to the stars someday. And we have a meeting every two years. And our last meeting was this summer in Canada, in Montreal at McGill University. Lots of students took part, mm -hmm. which was great. And there was a speaker there, Dr. John Bradford, who was talking about the latest research into cryogenic sleep, torpor. How do you, this whole notion of, you know, putting people to sleep for these long voyages through space. And it's great if we can do that. I think it'd be great to cut down on the boredom of the trip, et cetera, et cetera. The drawback is you still age. Oh, well. <laughs> okay. So you, no, it's not good. So if you have a three-year trip, yeah. you might um, not get bored, but you wake up three years older than when you left, right? Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's not going to be, I'll just give an example. One of my favorite 
space movies, I won't call it science fiction, was mm-hmm. Passengers. Did, did you see Passengers? No. It was oh. out a few years ago. It was about an interstellar voyage to another planet, but it was a love story. Mm-hmm. And these people, you know, they get on the ship and all, all the men are 25 and soccer players and look real buff and all the women are supermodels, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, they, they go to sleep. Perfect human specimens, right? You know, by the ideal. None of us look like that, yeah. but that, that's what the ideal was. Mm-hmm. And somebody wakes up early mid-flight and they can't go back mm-hmm. to sleep and they're alone on this ship so there's mm-hmm. an ethical decision do i remain awake and die alone or do i wake somebody yeah. up and have a companion i won't give it away uh but i did say it was a love story so mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of gives it yeah, away yeah. what well, happened. there's probably another person then <laughs> yeah but in the story the, the the flaw scientifically is not the space drive they did a great job depicting that and the mm-hmm. risks of things that can happen on a voyage like that with micrometeorites dust getting hit by stuff the flaw was these people uh, went to sleep for a hundred years. Mm-hmm. And when they wake up, you know, your 25 year old, uh, you know, really buff soccer player wakes up yeah. and he's got a five o'clock shadow. That's yeah. it. He hadn't aged, right? He's, <laughs> he's the same age yeah. as when he left, but that, that would be two problems you have to solve. How to get people mm-hmm. to sleep for a hundred years and how do you turn off yeah. aging while they're sleeping? And I think that's going to be the harder challenge. Yeah. Well, could you turn off all, all of their cells? Um, like you, you just freeze them completely. I doubt it. That's not turned out well for those who've tried. I think people mm. have tried that. I think Walt Disney has his head frozen somewhere. Yeah. And, and the notion is he's to be reawakened, you mm-hmm. know, when a, there's a cure for a disease that he had and B when they can wake him up and make sure all the cells didn't burst from getting frozen. <laughs> so, you know, good luck with that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think there's still some benefit to putting people asleep, even if they age, though, because the metabolism rates are probably significantly lower. Um, yeah. It's like when animals hibernate. Um, I'd say they still age. Uh, they do. Yeah. Yeah, but, I think they do. Um, Maybe it's a little slower than normal, but it would have to be slowed dramatically to make it a viable way. So that you, if you want to go to the stars at 10 percent the speed of light, which is really not easily done at all. Mm-hmm. It would still take, you know, 50 years, 40 to 50 years to get to the nearest star. And, you know, I don't want to go to bed at 22 and wake up at 72. Yeah. Okay. That would be like, what happened? Me neither. <laughs> this isn't <Yeah>. fair. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so you'd have to turn off the aging. Yeah. You'd have to do that. Mm-hmm. But it's also possible that, well, when we eventually take off to uh, new planets and distant systems, that we'll just have to create a world ship and people will just have to... Well, it's it's not the astronauts that are going to see the star. It's it's their great 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 grandchildren. Absolutely, I think that's entirely possible. There are people looking at that seriously. Mm-hmm. Uh, there have been some great papers written by Dr. Andreas Hein, who is mm-hmm. in Luxembourg, and uh, his area of specialty, one of the many he has, is looking at world ships and mm-hmm. trying to determine the optimum genetic composition and size and and what has to be done on a yeah. world ship to survive. So he, I would encourage people to look into his work. I don't think he's written popular yeah. science articles, but he's published mm-hmm. several papers on the topic. Yeah, but whenever I try to imagine, especially n- not being the pioneers, but being like one of the midterm generations being born on, like, like say, a warship, uh, a world ship, I would, I would feel particularly bored and probably like, what's the meaning of my life? Am I just an intermediate product? So it depends on what you have to do during the voyage, I guess. Um, yeah, you didn't ask to be born where you were today. No, no. And 
And I didn't ask to be born where I was born or to the parents I was born with or the the life my parents had when I grew up in rural mm-hmm. East Kentucky. Um, and I, I don't know. I think it, it when we put ourselves in that position, we kind of assume we have to give up what we have to do that. Exactly. But I think if people were born into that situation, they might have a different view. Yeah. Um, well, play with the cards that you're dealt with, right? That's exactly right. That's That's the optimist in me, mm-hmm. right? You know, that, that, yeah. that wherever you are, you can make a meaningful life from it if, you know, if, if you're given half a chance. Exactly. So final question. Um, yes. What do you think about the universe uh, when you contemplate or, or if you contemplate about the universe? Do you are you astonished by its vastness? Oh, my. Um, the way I calmed down after I got news uh, that my mother passed many years ago uh was to go outside and look at the cloudless sky with the stars um when i am outside i feel a spiritual connection Mm -hmm. and i've already mentioned i'm a person of faith so for me i think it's looking at the vastness of of god's creation but even Mm -hmm. if i weren't and i were strictly a naturalist in my worldview i would look out at the vastness of the universe and just be in awe of Mm -hmm. of that and our place in it, and the fact, and this is this is an interesting question, the fact that we have the capability to look out at that vastness and understand it, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, we, we have telescopes, we get an idea of how big it is, what the processes are, and even though we may never get that far, we have a pretty good idea of what's going on out there and why and how, just by based on our science of what we have here. And so I, uh, I, I think two things would happen if all the power went out, except in hospitals and airplanes, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. so people don't get hurt and the skies were clear and people went out and looked at the stars and could see the stars, which people in urban areas can't. Mm-hmm. Two things would happen. First thing that would happen is I think people would become more spiritual regardless of their faith, of whatever mm-hmm. that is. And the second thing would happen was funding for space exploration would go up. And, and the reason for that is people would be saying, "Who? what is out there? Why are we here? Why, why don't we know more about what's out there? We need to go. Mm-hmm. So in, in contemplating the universe, I think, uh, you know, the heavens just really declare just a, a majesty of everything. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's always been my fascination, always, ever since I can remember. I was about eight years old. When I first looked through a little rickety telescope and saw the rings of Saturn, I had seen pictures of it in a book. It's not the same as when you look up and the light is coming into your eye and you're seeing it in real time. And when you're looking at those stars, that light's been traveling for thousands of years, some of it, to touch you. So you're touching almost the infinite. And when that happens, it's to me, it's just a, a blessed time. Yeah. yeah. I, whenever I think about how big the universe is, how we're just one system, and then there are billions of systems within our galaxy, and there are billions of galaxies within our visible universe, and who knows how big the actual universe is. Well, it, it's just so fascinating. Um, it is. We're, and we're and both it's small, but also significant. Absolutely. The fact that we're here to ask that question, uh, it, it may, you may, you may feel small physically, mm-hmm. but in that vastness, there are probably not many 
intelligent species capable of doing that, which yeah. makes life here all the more precious and all the more important to preserve, protect, and expand into that universe. Yes. Well, Mr. Johnson, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on David Talks With. Thank you for sharing your insights on all of the things we talked with, whether it's life, space propulsion, your career as a writer, and your many thoughts on faith. Um, we, we covered a lot of ground today, from the future of space exploration to the intersection of science and storytelling. And I just want to thank you for sharing all this precious information with all of us. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, it was a pleasure to meet you and have the discussion. And I wish you well on your podcast. Do great things. Thank you. I'd like to conclude today's episode with a powerful quote by the renowned mathematician David Hilbert. Wir müssen wissen, wir werden wissen, which translates to, we must know, we well know. The sentiment, rooted in relentless pursuit of knowledge, serves as a beacon of hope and determination, especially in challenging times. Let it inspire us to persevere and overcome any obstacles in our path. Together, we can and will triumph. Thank you for tuning in to David Talks With. Wishing you a wonderful day and I look forward to our next conversation.